as we sort of power down the exciting speedway of rediscovering this idea of hospitality, there's something that we don't want to miss. Um, eating and drinking, I'm sure you've noticed, cannot be accomplished without food. And food, like many good things, can become the means by which evil is done in the world rather than good. Up until now, we've been talking about good stuff, partying, eating food, making friends, celebrating, learning about your neighbors, all that stuff, all very good things. And here again, good things can be abused. Now, if you're new to the Bible, let me save you an in-depth word study and let you know that this library of writings has quite a bit to say about food. And one of the primary food motifs in the scriptures is God's great concern for the hungry or the poor. See, the idea is that in God's economy, those with an abundance are to sacrifice out of their excess, even their own comfort actually, for the sake of those who have little. And God not only encourages this, it's not just a suggestion, He commands it. Look at this from the Torah, Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am Yahweh God. The wisdom literature of the Hebrew Scriptures is filled with passages like this one. Look at this from Proverbs 22. The generous will themselves be blessed. Why? For they share their food with the poor. In the book of Isaiah, God has become frustrated with Israel because her acts of religious observance are not accompanied by acts of justice. Look at this from Isaiah chapter 58. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, God says, to loosen the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? That last line can be translated, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? Which brings us to the Gospel of Luke. Now, in the story that we're about to read, Jesus is in the home of a prominent religious leader. And he's doing his thing, he's eating and drinking, he's hanging out, he's partying, his friends are with him. But Jesus is about to disrupt the status quo. Let's read beginning in Luke chapter 14, verse 12. You guys ready? Great. Luke 14, 12, then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. When Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the alleys, the streets of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads, the country lanes, compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, 
The scene is this, once again, dinner party, and it's on the Sabbath. It's a day that included a noteworthy meal, lots of guests, celebration, the whole thing. And Jesus is in the home of a religious leader that we're told is something of a famous individual. So it stands to reason this is kind of a big deal. This is like a hip, invite-only, you know, social club elite type of thing. And, you know, here comes Jesus, who predictably <laughs> he sits down, he starts eating, and then he starts to criticize the whole thing right in front of everyone. Uh, in front of everyone, including directly to the host. At the heart, though, of Jesus' critique is a concern for the poor. Now, as we've already seen, that Jesus, who was a Jewish rabbi, would share God's concern for the poor comes as no surprise. He was into the Torah. He had it memorized. So it stands to reason that would be one of his values. But there's two built-in inferences here for us tonight, I think, as we grow in the spiritual discipline of eating and drinking. The first is that for Jesus... The idea of feeding the hungry or doing justice is one dimension of hospitality. They are often one and the same. And in keeping with Isaiah 58, share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house. Now, for the last couple of weeks, we've discussed the way that Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost, and that the means by which he did so was by, quote, eating and drinking. So Jesus is on a mission, he's inviting people into God's kingdom, and he is armed with the most unassuming yet powerful of weapons, the dinner table. And here, Jesus' concern for the poor exceeds base nourishment. It's not just that he wants them to be fed, he wants them to be included at the banquet of the rich. But in Jesus' story, there's actually a twist. Apparently, amongst the well-off, the privileged, the provided for, contentment has somehow bred complacency. The invitation to the master's banquet goes out, and it's a manner typical of ancient Near Eastern culture where the, the idea was that the host would extend an invitation in order to determine the necessary supplies for hosting. And then a second invitation would go out to say, all right, now it's all ready, you can come on over. And here, the invitation is met with a long litany of excuses and delays and stalling. They're saying things like, oh, I've got investments to oversee, I've got plans to work out. I've got relationships on which to focus. And interestingly, these excuses are pretty lame, if not insulting. For example, no one in the first century would purchase land or livestock without inspecting them first. And yet someone offers the excuse, well, I just bought land, so now I need to go see it. Or they say, I just bought oxen, so now I need to go check them out. So this is kind of like the first century equivalent of like, I have to wash my hair that night or, you know, whatever the lame excuse is. And so the unrequited invitation moves on to some other people, and that list is a really interesting one. See, most of the religious leaders of Jesus' day had forbidden anyone who was blind, crippled, or paralyzed to enter the temple at all. We even have ancient documents that show one particularly conservative group called the Essenes interpreted a passage from the Torah, Leviticus 21, to also mean that the poor, the blind, the crippled would not participate in the messianic banquet, the, uh, the, the, the occasion on which God's anointed king would finally come back, restore Israel, there'd be a big feast and celebration. But in Jesus' parable, the host of the great banquet specifically commands that the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, and then it even goes out to the foreigner and the Gentile, all be invited to come sit at the table in the kingdom of God. And the banquet in Jesus' story becomes so well populated with society's rabble that there remains no seat for the prim and the proper. Again, this is the story that Jesus tells during a dinner party in the home of a famous religious leader. 
Jesus is uh, relentlessly punk rock in this way. I'm, I imagine him, you know, reclining at the table. The scriptures often say that he does that. And he's looking around. He's checking out the digs. He's like, oh, this is a nice party. Look at all these people having a good time. And then he's like, this is nice. Who wants to hear a story? And they're all like, oh, man, he's, here he goes. Because Jesus' ambition was to seek and save the lost, eating and drinking. He wanted to use the dinner table to do justice. And he, had, he was also well aware that the dinner table was also being used to do injustice. Now, ours is a culture that is in many ways radically different than the world of the first century. We get that. But yet, the issue of food-related injustice hasn't gone anywhere. I would argue that this is perhaps even more so the case today than it was in the first century. And our problem of food-fueled injustice can be broken up into at least three very broad categories for us to sort through tonight. Excess, oppression, and cruelty. And let's start with excess. Now I'm going to throw some stats at you guys. Bear with me. We're going somewhere. According to a recent USDA study, more than 130 billion pounds of food with an excess or a value in excess of $160 billion is uneaten in a given year in the United States. That's 31% of the available food supply that goes straight into the trash. Roughly 50% of all produce in the United States is thrown away. And before you brag about your home garden, if you have one, we're working on one at our house, uh, recent estimates argue that 11 billion pounds of excess food is grown but never consumed in America's home and community gardens every single year. And there are a number of complicated factors that contribute to this problem. Uh, one is just the fact that we make too much food, and that's related to the problem that we expect, quite unrealistically, that food should be as fresh and as cosmetically beautiful as possible all the time. It's just not realistic. And there's another reason that it's just relatively cheap here compared to other parts of the world. And as a result, we, I think, have lost a sense of humble gratitude for food itself. Because food is everywhere. You know, you, we live right down the road from one of the most famous food cities in the entire country. Vancouver is moving along in that regard as well. But when food becomes little more than a luxurious fashion accessory, a trend, it becomes nearly impossible to remember food as a gracious gift of a generous God in a world where food is often scarce and many go without food altogether. In his book, Food and Faith, A Theology of Eating, Norman Wurzba writes this, When people understand creation as the concrete manifestation of God's sacrificial love, then it is an imperative that food production and consumption recognize and honor the costly grace of life. Now, don't get me wrong, going out to eat with friends is great, planting a garden is awesome. Buying produce is good. I do all those things. I think that you should do all those things if you'd like. But Jesus intends for his disciples to live simply, to understand all they have as a gift from God, to treat it as though it weren't theirs to keep or to hoard, but to share their resources, to do justice with them. And that goes for food as well. There is a grave danger in taking food for granted, because when you do, you will waste it and you will fail to recognize that the things we eat, the food that we buy, it came from somewhere. There's a story there. And that story is, unfortunately, often a story of oppression. 
A few months ago, we began an ongoing discussion here at Van City in our House of Learning class about a sinister reality of the fashion industry. See, the clothes that we buy are often the products of slavery, forced labor, child abuse, human trafficking. And I'm sure many of you know well enough, the same is true of much of the food we buy as well. According to the State Department's annual report on human trafficking, tens of millions of men, women, and children are still trafficked into slavery every single year. And many of those victims are later forced to work in agriculture and food processing. Child labor is widespread in coffee cultivation in particular. Up to 40% of coffee farming in Honduras and Brazil is done by children. Forced labor permeates the cocoa farms where our chocolate bars begin. The same is even true of the tea industry I learned recently. Shrimp farms and processing plants in Thailand are heavily reliant on slave labor. Forced labor, including debt bondage, also continues to sustain palm oil plantations in Malaysia and Indonesia. And palm oil, if you don't know, is used in all sorts of processed foods from Dunkin' Donuts to Girl Scout cookies. Um, labor reports even documented cases of enslaved migrants working in Florida's tomato industry right here in the States. Now, if you're thinking, man, what the heck? How am I supposed to do anything about all of that? I can't possibly track the history of every single thing I eat. But really, forget trying to track everything and just consider the idea of beginning to consider the origin of just some of the things that you eat. Begin there. Because the question I pose is not unlike the same question I pose when I ask people to evaluate fast fashion. If you learn that your purchases are directly contributing to injustice and oppression in the world, should we, as faithful disciples of Jesus, continue to make those purchases? Or will our shopping and eating habits have to change? Because it's not just the human beings that are victimized by the food industry. Creation itself pays a terrible price in order to satisfy the reckless ingratitude of our eating habits. And this results in cruelty. Now, I know this is a completely divisive subject. I just want you guys to bear with me for just a couple of minutes. I'm not going to require that everyone become vegan or anything like that. But listen, many of us, I think, have come to understand creation itself, and in particular animals, as little more than objects for human appetite. So dogs and cats are here because we like pets, and other animals are here so we can eat them. But in the story of the scriptures, God's original intention for animals and for creation, for the environment, had nothing to do with human appetites. In the garden, we didn't eat animals. And listen, even after the garden, we were initially forbidden from eating animals until the flood story. Before we got here, my point is that God had skillfully designed animals as an artist creates a masterpiece. And the descriptions often speak of God's concern and even God's affection for animals. To cite just one easy example, if you know the story of Jonah, uh, if you went to Sunday school at any point in your life, you heard that one and probably a weird version of it. But if you know the story of Jonah, we read in chapter 4 that one of the main reasons that God himself cites for having so much patience for the city of Nineveh rather than destroying it was because, quote, many animals are there. And yes, I get it. In the brokenness of a world gone off the rails as a result of evil, uh, many now eat animals. Like us, they suffer and die. That's part and parcel of the human and animal experience. Even Jesus, post-resurrection, he ate some broiled fish. He had the Passover dinner. Um, Paul is fine with eating meat. They all talk about it. But what I want you to understand is that the world of farming and fishing in the first century is not the world of the modern-day meat industry and factory farms, not by a long shot. A world in which mind-boggling amounts of animals are bred directly into nightmare suffering for the sake of a meal. And I'm not just talking about killing animals for food, not at all. I'm talking about excess and inhumane cruelty 
that abuses and exploits and objectifies God's creation. I don't think that it's right, and I don't think that God is okay with it. Whatever you think about eating animal products, I don't think that excess abuse of God's creation is okay. Now, I personally, and I'm not saying this is what you have to do, I gave up animal products uh, years ago, stereotypical fashion. I watched a couple of those shocking documentaries on the reality of what goes on in factory farm, and I was like, Woo! that was it. I was like, never again, you know. I was a soft sell. But hey, I stuck with it. And, uh, and it never, you know, it's funny, it never fails because I often, this teaching aside, I don't often proselytize people. It's just my thing. That's totally fine. Um, but sometimes people will say, oh, why is that? How come you do that? Tell me more. And I'll say, actually, it started because I watched this documentary or I read this book or whatever it might be. And I'll invite them. I'm like, I have it. You want me to put it in right now? And they're like, no, 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 no. Because they know <laughs> that what they see will horrify them and they don't want to have, you know, their Chick-fil-A or whatever with a side of guilt. Um, recently, <laughs> this is a funny story, an extended family member of mine became upset uh, apparently when a video that kind of showcases the horrors of the dairy industry and factory farms was being shared in a text thread. And, uh, and they recoiled at this video because they have lots of pet dogs. And they said, how can you show me this? I'm an animal lover. To which I kind of thought, well, no, what you love is pets, not animals. So, you know, if you just imagine your dogs going through the horrors of a factory farm, maybe that'll help you connect with the material, whatever it takes. The point I'm getting at is that I'm entirely convinced personally that God's not okay with the way that his creation is being treated. And by creation, I don't just mean animals. The environment itself pays a terrible toll or pays a terrible cost because of our recklessness. Over 37% of methane emissions result from factory farming alone. The fossil fuels used in energy and transportation, synthetic pesticides, fertilizers, emits 90 million tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. That's a lot. Uh, industrial agriculture sucks up 70% of the world's fresh water supplies, and the EPA estimates that this makes for 75% of all water quality problems in America. Water polluted with agricultural runoff can destroy whole ecosystems. It can be toxic, if not lethal, to humans and animals alike. In the United States alone, up to 260 million acres of forest have been cleared out to make room for crop fields, most of which are used to exclusively grow livestock feed alone to satiate our incredible demand for all the meat. And this environmental degradation contributes to climate change around the world, which furthers famine, which affects the hungry in the developing world, not just here in the States. But here in the States, the U.S. government subsidizes unhealthy crops and farming practices, which makes healthy food increasingly inaccessible to the poor. It's all a cruel cycle, and it is intricately, intricately connected. Now listen, I know things just got intense. I have a joke coming in a moment. It's great. You'll like it. Don't worry. But don't tune me out. Uh, please, don't, don't feel discouraged or overwhelmed. Again, I do not, believe me, I do not believe that every single disciple of Jesus has to become vic vegan or go entirely plant-based. I don't think that every disciple of Jesus has to plant their own garden and harvest their own coffee beans. But if you do, let me have some of them. Um, but listen, I do believe that every disciple of Jesus is called to sacrifice their own comfort when doing so is necessary to follow Jesus well. If that changes the way that we understand food in one way or another, then yeah, sure, we can plug our ears, we can ignore the world around us, or we can listen and submit to the way of Jesus in every aspect of our lives. Not every disciple of Jesus has to become vegan or open a food bank, but 
every disciple of Jesus is called to care for the poor, to care for God's creation, and that will, I think, inevitably change the way that we eat and the way that we buy food. So before we end tonight, I want to suggest just a few basic pragmatic steps forward in breaking our food's relationship with injustice so that we can find ways to use food to do justice instead. And remember, this is a journey. The expectation is not for you to overhaul your shopping list and reorient your entire approach to food overnight or even during the course of these practices. There's actually a reason that we arranged for this practice of eating and drinking to come along more than a year into our journey with the spiritual disciplines. And I realize that it may seem challenging for many of us, but listen, the invitation, as always, is to just take a step, give it a shot, begin the journey. You can do this together. Go for it. So my first suggestion this evening is to simply remember that everything you eat has a story. A while back, I was, you know, in the uh, never-ending debate over quality. It's like, you know, people love to fight about which ice cream is the best or which donuts are the best, you know. And I was arguing with a friend of mine about the quality of ice creams, and I recommended that they try the, like, or coffee chocolate ice cream at Ben and Jerry's rather than the popular local joint in Portland because the coffee and cocoa at Ben and Jerry's is always certified fair trade. And this person was like, yeah, but isn't everything at the other place local? But it just isn't true, is it? You know, like we, for, it turns out we can't grow or harvest our coffee and cocoa beans here. We do it elsewhere in the world. The point is that everywhere you go, everything you order, everything you eat has a story. So what I think we should begin to ask ourselves is, is that story a story of injustice? Did the making of your food contribute to goodness, wholeness, human flourishing, or did it contribute to something else? And if the answer is something else, would Jesus ask you to reconsider that meal or that snack or that drink or that brand? And if you're curious, you can ask him and see what he says. And that may seem daunting, but it can be done. You don't have to change everything overnight. Just start asking questions, doing research, making adjustments. Food documentaries, I realize, are all the rage at the moment. I, could, I tried to do like an inventory of the best ones. I'm like, good Lord, there's like three dozen. When I, so anyway, if you want some entry-level material, try food choices for more on the way that the food, food industry infects, affects the environment and sustainability. And if you can muster the courage, Earthlings, which is narrated by none other than Joaquin Phoenix himself, is the mother of all exposés on the meat industry in particular. Now, out of that, even if you watch the documentary, you start to ask questions, you start to pray, start to think it through, not everyone's choices will look exactly the same. Not everyone's adjustments will look exactly the same. That's totally fine. Like I said, I'm vegan personally, but I have friends who share similar convictions from the top to bottom. They're right there with me, and they still eat animal products, but they only buy animal products from brands and establishments that they can research, and they have some peace of mind that the animals were treated ethically and humanely, never anything from factory farms, usually stuff from local farms. And where we live, that's actually relatively easy to do. Does this still eliminate a ton of options? Yes, I'm afraid it does. And I get it, it's tough. You think that I don't want to eat a Reese's cup? Are you nuts? They're delicious. Have you had one of those, Lanners? Have you had a Reese's cup? They're amazing. Yeah, you have. To, to, man, I'm impressed. You're more impressed than I. I want to eat them. They're delicious. But I don't, I've come to a place where I don't want to contribute 
to slavery in the world or to animal cruelty, so I don't eat the delicious Reese's cup. If anything, I feel like that gives me some credibility in this conversation, even if you're like, man, that guy's nuts, he's a fanatic, but you got to give it to him. He can say no to a Reese's cup. It's pretty impressive. That was the joke I promised, by the way. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'll be here next week. <laughs> So, you know, just Google things. Begin to do some amount of research. There's a tremendous amount of material out there. It's terrifically easy to come by. You can just look for the fair tray labeled on your, on your coffee and your chocolate, you know, one step at a time. Begin somewhere and take it on. Sometimes people ask us here at Van City why we often have little or no meat options when we buy dinner as a church. And believe it or not, it isn't because I'm trying to force those dinners to be meat-free. It's because we want to make sure that all the food, all the coffee, all the treats that we buy are as ethically sourced as possible. And sometimes that means having less, or sometimes it means we can't get something altogether, depending on the week. My next suggestion is this. Embrace simplicity even with food. And I think this applies if you're like the parent of five kids or if you're a bachelor who lives alone and you don't know how to boil noodles or whatever. When you, know, when, when you begin to read about the inherent problems in the food industry, one thing becomes increasingly clear. Many of those problems are connected to the fact that we simply make and buy too much food. And so the environment pays a cost, animal king, the animal kingdom pays a cost, and in the end, much of that resultant food just gets thrown out. So be mindful. Buy the food that you need and then eat that food. Enjoy it. Guilt-free. You can do that. Don't buy more than you need. Don't throw out the zucchini just because it has one small blemish. You can actually cut that part off. It's still really good. Enjoy. And then the idea is that you begin to replace waste with gratitude. Remember when you eat that food comes at a cost, and not in a begrudgingly guilty sort of way, in a celebratory way. Remember that the food that you eat comes at a cost. Remember that the food you eat is a gift. Many people in the world don't have it, that you're lucky to have any at all. And then as you fill your heart with that gratitude and that celebration, you get to enjoy your food accordingly. If you don't want to give up things like animal products or whatever, honestly, you can still make a tremendous difference by simply eating less of them. You can track your own trends of wastefulness and be like, man, it seems like we throw out, that's what we learned at my house. It's like, we always throw out at least two zucchini. Why are we so forward thinking on the zucchini? Uh, but apparently we're like, man, I'm just really worried that we'll hit the bottom of these zucchini and there won't be enough. So we're like, we should probably buy less zucchini. Track you know, your own trends and your, your own trends of wastefulness. Adjust your shopping habits accordingly. But both of those suggestions have to do with refraining from doing things. So let me end with more of a call to action. Given that we realize, I hope, how much injustice is done in the world by the production of food, one of the most subversive things that I can think for the disciple of Jesus to do is to use food to actively do justice instead. So this week, when you get together with your community, you'll go to practicingtheway.org and think through some changes you might make to your shopping and eating habits, as well as brainstorming, on, uh, brainstorming ideas on how you might come together to do justice with your food. And lucky for us, the opportunities are actually innumerable. You could do as we've already done in previous practice, where you pick a day to fast together as a community, remember the poor during your fast, then donate the money you would have spent on food to a charitable organization that feeds the hungry. That's a great idea. You could volunteer at or donate to Clark County Food Bank, sorting uh, food or even volunteering on their farm. They need people I read this week uh, just about every day and through all the seasons. You could donate to or volunteer at Fish of Vancouver, which is another food pantry right up the road from us. 
There are all sorts of opportunities like these across the river as well. You could volunteer at the mission. You could participate in a food drive. You could donate to a pantry or sponsor a child. There's all sorts of unique things that you find when you just do a cursory Google search. I even learned this week that Portland Parks and Recs has a free lunch and play program because lots of kids depend on school lunch during the year and then they just go without during the summer. So this program gets together food to feed kids who don't get lunches during the summer. You could do what some people in our own community have begun to do and consider inviting a foster child into your home and then feed them at your table. I can think of few gestures more beautiful and more like Jesus than that. You can do what Jesus actually proposed do, doing and throw a party just to invite the poor, the blind, and on down the list. I don't know how you're going to do that, but, and it sounds like a long shot, but the idea is that be as creative, imaginative, and broad in your thinking as you can possibly be. And at any rate, those are really just a few ideas. Maybe you have a different one. Maybe there's something you already do that you can invite people in your community to join you. There are all sorts of ways that you can do justice with food, well within the reach for just about every budget and every season of life. You could simply find someone in need of a meal, buy them that meal, and then sit and eat with them. And this could be someone that you pass on your way to work or someone that you know personally who's in need. If you're not sure how you'd have an opportunity like that naturally, you could, if you're brave enough, ask God for one and then keep your eyes peeled. He may surprise you. You could talk to a stranger and make them a friend armed with nothing but food as your weapon. Uh, for years, you know, I used to travel the world as a musician. I was in and out of every major city in the country all throughout the year. And over the years, I would kind of, I started very young and did it for a long time, but I would kind of waver in my reaction to folks that I would meet in urban areas who would walk up asking for something, you know, whether it was like, oh, I need some money or food or bus tickets or beer or whatever they wanted. And I'm sure I don't have to educate you guys on the complicated conundrum of issues of houselessness and poverty and mental illness and addiction and injustice, terribly compl complicated. But every night, I would meet someone who would inevitably walk up, strike up a conversation, and then ask for something, often just money for food. So eventually, I just took to sand because it would you know, kind of be a busy and chaotic thing going on, unloading or loading up a van or something. So I just took to saying something like, hey, listen, if you're hungry, I'll buy you something to eat. Um, and some of them would say, oh, that's not what I'm looking for, and they'd walk away. Or sometimes they'd be like, yeah, sure, I'd like that, and I'd buy them like a Subway sandwich or whatever. Now, I wasn't exactly leading a lavish lifestyle myself. So one night um, in what I believe was Detroit, I was approached by this gentleman who walked up and called himself Papa Smurf. And uh, he wanted, he I think it was because he had a hat. I don't know. But uh, he, it wasn't red, though, so maybe that wasn't it. Um, but he was asking for some money for food. And I honestly, at that point, did not have any money, um, not on me or otherwise, but I did have some groceries in our van. So our van was like kind of parked on this busy street next to some dive, and it was dusk. And Papa Smurf and I climbed into the van. The doors were open up to let the cool evening air in, and I made us a couple of sandwiches or whatever. And we started talking, because here we are sitting there, I'm making sandwiches, strike up a conversation. He told me about his family. He told me about being estranged from his children. We talked at length about Jesus. He was like, hey, what do you do? What do you think about the world? And when he first approached me, really, he was just little more than an issue that I had learned to deal with. Hey, if someone asks me for something, this is my canned response, and then I deal with it accordingly. But in those moments, in that unique scenario, um, he wasn't just another aggravation of life on the road. He wasn't a mark. He wasn't a target for evangelism. We were just two dudes eating sandwiches in a van with lives that were in some ways similar, but in many ways were wildly different. And then he went on his way. He said, thanks for the sandwich. Have a good night. And I think we saw him again the next time we were in Detroit. Maybe a story like that doesn't seem incredible or inspiring because it's so ordinary. 
It doesn't end with Papa Smurfs coming to faith that I know of, even though we talked about Jesus. Uh, no hashtags were founded. They didn't exist at the time. Um, no movements were initiated. I wasn't inspired to start a nonprofit as a result. But then I think of the stories of Jesus eating and drinking, and I realize that aren't most of them similarly ordinary? They detail the events of an isolated incident, and then what unfolds therein is usually wonderfully simple. We don't really read about any incredible movements that happen later as a result. Um, for years, I lived in northwest Portland, and I would skateboard to the, from my apartment to the church office where I worked every single morning, and I would, do, I would actually have to steer around the people that were sleeping on the streets under the bridge on my way. And one evening, so this, this was just the route that I took to get anywhere. One evening, I had a friend visiting from out of town, and we took a walk in the evening to get Chinese food. And I'm stepping over sleeping bags, not, you know, not missing a beat, not forgetting a word in my sentence. And she was choking back tears. And she, I was walking and talking, realized she wasn't beside me. And I turned around and looked that she, was, she had sat before this person asking if they were hungry or if they needed water and if they knew where the nearest shelter was. And I was thinking, man, we're going to be here all night. There's like dozens of people on the street between here and the Chinese place. And then I realized, oh, right, there's still people to her. And that haunting moment lingered in my mind. So that the next evening when I was out taking my walk and I went to get food or whatever it was, I happened upon a person, I remembered my friend, and I offered them one of my two slices of pizza. Yes, I got two slices, even though they were big. But this particular evening, I'm like, oh, you know, it's, this is one gritty dimension of what it means, I think, to practice what we've been calling radically ordinary hospitality. Hey, you like food. I like food. You want some of my food? And it seems so ordinary. It seems so simple and so... Um, so plain, but really, in that simple gesture, you do a profound thing. You mock Satan because the enemy, I think, laughs at God when he says, look at how I turn your good things against you. Your food gets wasted. Your people are selfish. Your world is ravaged. Your animals are abused. And then we, the church, embody a different way. We stand, we regroup, and we say to the enemy with our actions, with our lifestyle, in practicing the way of Jesus, we will yet find ways to do good eating and drinking together.